Our topic, Judaism versus Biblical Christianity. We're going to look at Luke 18, 9 to 14, and uh, it's the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's going to be a two-parter. I'm not going to finish today. Today we're going to look at the Pharisee, but uh, you're going to learn a lot about modern Judaism, and uh, which is the descendants of the Pharisees. <clears throat> it originally, before the destruction of the temple, you had the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Sadducees. Well, all those went extinct except for the Pharisees. And what we have today, uh, Judaism and all its forms, they're all descended from the Pharisees. And all Judaism until about 1740 was pretty much identical. Uh, even the Sephardim and the uh, Ashkenazi, they all taught and believed the same things, which was came from the Pharisees and the Talmud. Uh, then they started to diverge. Luke 18, 9 to 11, 14. And he spoke this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In this world, there are essentially only two approaches to religion or how one can be right with God and enter the kingdom of heaven. Even among Buddhism and Hinduism and other mystical sects, uh, it's all about what you do, your technique, your meditation, and all that sort of thing. One is based on good works, law-keeping, ethical living, or self-achievement, that is, human merit, you earn it, and the other is based solely on God's grace and the perfect achievements of salvation by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Two very different systems, which of course is received by faith alone. One is based on self-righteousness, while the other is based on the shed blood and righteousness of Christ. One is rooted in pride and self-praise, while the other is rooted in great humility and self-loathing. You see that in the tax collector's prayer. Not even willing to look up to heaven, beating his breast. In this little parable, we have a brief introduction by Luke. <coughs> then, there is a consideration of the prayer and um, attitude of the Pharisee which Jesus will condemn. This observation is followed by a look at the prayer of a certain tax collector, which our Lord will praise. The parable ends with a conclusion where Christ tells us what kind of prayer was heard by God with a proverbial statement giving us a reason why. This is a very special and precious section of Scripture. For it not only sets forth a fundamental aspect of the gospel, 
but also warns us in a very stark, strong manner against the most common way pe people think about obtaining eternal life, which is radically unscriptural, <clears throat> and that is salvation by works. Islam, Judaism, Roman Catholicism, all the cults, Buddhism, Hinduism. Well, let's look first at Luke's introduction. <clears throat> when Luke introduces this parable, he tells us that it is for those who believe that they are essentially that they essentially save themselves. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's verse 9. Now this introduction implies <clears throat> that there were, he was speaking of either Pharisees or the follower of the Pharisees or both in the audience. The Pharisees being the leaders, the religious leaders. So it applies to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and their followers. And when Christ would speak to a mixed multitude, which he did often, there would be a mixture of true believers and his enemies. <clears throat> the most common error regarding how to attain eternal life in heaven is self-righteousness. The unregenerate, corrupt, depraved, and blind heart naturally clings to a work system of salvation. Because unsaved men are spiritually blind and they have a very high, inaccurate picture of themselves. Calvin would always say, you, you can't see, really understand yourself unless you understand God. This false picture is due to a number of factors. Number one, Men do not understand God's moral law and all its parameters. We are not only required to obey the law outwardly, you know, you don't go murder some guy, you don't commit adultery, you don't go get a, a hooker, you know, you don't, obviously you have to obey the moral, moral law outwardly. <clears throat> but also in our minds or hearts. Unjust anger and hatred as well as unlawful lust, will send a person to hell, not just the outward acts. And Jesus emphasizes this in the Sermon on the Mount. Once this crucial fact is understood, one will see that no fallen person can earn his way into heaven. So understand the law. And the testimony of Scripture on this point is crystal clear. 1 Kings 8, 46, Solomon said, There is no one who does not sin. Romans 3, 10, 12, and 19. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may become guilty before God. And that's not simply the New Testament. Paul is quoting from Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and 53, 1 to 3. Ecclesiastes 7.20 For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. 
Now, these statements that no one does good, you have to understand that in the Bible, and Jesus backed it up in Luke 17.10, even our best works are tainted with sin <clears throat> because we're fallen creatures. And we never do anything out of a completely pure, perfect motive. Job 15.14, what is man that he should be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous. James 3.2, for we all stumble in many things. 1 John 1, 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In all of human history, there's only been one person who lived a sinless, perfect life, Jesus Christ. He's the only one in all of history. A life acceptable to God. Everyone else, including the most pious saints, have sinned thousands of times. And thus, apart from Christ, they have a guilty record before God. Here's what John Gill says. I think it summarizes the teachings of effectively. All the descendants of Adam, as such, are, are sinners, destitute of a righteousness, and filled with all unrighteousness. And they are enemies to true righteousness. No man is naturally righteous, nor is he capable of making himself so by anything he can do. None are righteous by their obedience to the law of works, for they are imperfect and can't justify before God, in whose sight no flesh living can be justified on this account, however righteous they may appear before men, or may be in their own eyes. For this is contrary to God's way of making men righteous, and would disannul the death of Christ, and encourage boasting in men. Such trust and confidence must be very vain, and arise from ignorance, from ignorance of God, of his perfection and his justice, and of the nature of his righteous law, and of themselves, of the impurity of their hearts, and the imperfection of their obedience. He covers it beautifully there. Now, are some men better than others? Yes, obviously. Do men, even atheists, sometimes do outwardly good works, what the reformers called civic righteousness? Indeed, they do. But God's measuring stick is absolute moral perfection in thought, word, and deed. Moreover, even, as I noted, even our best works are tainted with sin, Luke 17, 10. In addition, those who hold to salvation by works or self-righteousness must assume contrary to scripture, logic, and justice that good works can somehow remove or atone for the guilt of past sins. Roman Catholics teach this and Judaism teaches this. You can have works of super irrigation. You can actually eliminate past sins by doing good deeds. It doesn't work that way. But the penalty for sin is death and hell, not charity and working in a soup kitchen. Number two, men apart from grace and a knowledge of the scriptures are unfamiliar with the infinite holiness of God. <coughs> People that, who are fallen <clears throat> have a tendency to view God as if they were, he were simply an exalted fallen man who will tolerate sin and guilt, who will look the other way if a person tries to do better and says they are sorry. But infinite holiness requires absolute moral perfection 
in thought, word, and deed if the person is to have a title to eternal life. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and had to die. They died physically. Now, I believe they were probably saved. But they had to die because of one sin. One sin! And it was a sin regarding a positive law. It wasn't even a moral law. Don't eat of this tree. I tell you, based on my authority, don't eat from this tree. One sin. That's all it took. A God who overlooks sin and guilt and does not require that guilt be removed and a perfect obedience performed is not the God of the Bible. We have to deal with the, who, the real God who exists, Yahweh, the true and living God. And he is a certain way, he has a certain nature and character. So you better learn who this God is. Because if you don't understand who this God is, you're going to get everything else wrong. We must deal with a true God who exists, not a subjective humanistic fantasy. And then three. People have a tendency to judge their own behavior against evil degenerates and not according to God's holy law, which is an objective, perspicuous, perfect standard that reflects Yahweh's nature and character. You know, all these rock stars and Hollywood people who, they're out fornicating and committing adultery and doing all these things, and then when they die, oh yeah, they went right to heaven, they were a good person. And I've, I've done at least three funerals, and I, the, the people always, oh, what a good person they were. Yeah, they were a drug addict, and they fornicated a lot, and smoked a lot of dope, and took a lot of drugs, but they were a good person. They weren't murderers. They weren't killing people. They weren't serial killers. They're not like Charles Manson. No, we don't judge our behavior, our standard, by other people. It's always easy to find people that are worse than you. We judge our standard by God's perfect law, by who, what God requires. If most people compare themselves to murderers, criminals, thieves, rapists, they can say to themselves, I'm not like those wicked malefactors. I'm a good person. In fact, if one attends non-Christian funerals in America, it is virtually guaranteed that one will hear statements to the effect, Mr. Smith was a good person. He's up there in heaven right now watching us. And I've seen it, and it's, it's tragic to see this. It's sad, because they're not in heaven unless they bowed the knee to Christ and believed in him. We must not judge our behavior by the ever-changing rubber yardstick of modern culture. We live in a secular humanistic society that accepts all sorts of unlawful perversions as good and just. The only safe thing to do is to look at ourselves through the lens of God's revealed moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all the moral laws in Scripture that help explain the Ten Commandments. Learn God's law. Judge yourself by God's law. Don't concern yourself with your neighbor who may be worse than you and may be better than you. Don't worry about that. Focus on God's law. Focus on what God requires. The only cure for self-righteousness is an honest biblical analysis of our personal behavior and thought, word, and deed. That's what we have to do. There's always going to be people worse than you. There's going to be people that are way worse than you. There's going to be people that are better than you. It's always the case. So our concern is to focus on what Scripture says, the perfect yardstick. The Pharisees trusted in themselves because they did not use a biblical standard. And once again, the Sermon on the Mount, read, you know, Matthew 5, 6, 
it's clearly Christ is refuting the doctrine of the Pharisees. Yeah, I know a lot of guys who've never committed adultery. I've never touched a woman. I've never committed adultery. I've been married almost 40 years. But can you go even one day without having one impure thought? And the answer is no. You cannot. <laughs> if they had understood what God's law really requires, they would have not bragged about their own goodness, but rather would have begged God for forgiveness and looked to the Savior. We must look at our thoughts, our hearts, speech, action, motives, attitudes, in the light of what God's holy law requires. If we do so honestly, then self-righteousness and pride will die. We all become like beggars in the dust, begging for mercy and God's grace, because we know we can't achieve salvation on our own. It's just not going to happen. And we'll cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, so that's the introduction. Luke packs a lot in there. Well, let's look at the prayer of the Pharisee. And we're not going to get to the uh, tax collector today. I just ran out of time. And I'm going to go into an in-depth analysis and talk about Judaism, modern Judaism. Now, I know that there's secular Jews who are atheists, and the Reformed Jews are basically modernists. They're like Christian modernists. You know, they have sodomites and everything. And even conservatives are terrible. They call themselves conservative. They're not what Christians would call conservative Christians. They're still terrible. Um, but let's look at this and learn a lot about Judaism. Because modern Judaism is a religion of the Pharisees. Unlike the tax collector who stands afar off because of his guilt, the Pharisee takes a position of preeminence, much closer to the temple complex. There was an area of prayer for the Jewish men. And that Pharisee, he's in the front row. He wants to be seen. He's full of pride. And off in the back is the tax collector. He was likely a highly respected person, noted for his great piety. You have to understand the Pharisees were super popular in Israel. They were the religious leaders. And that is why they continued and the other groups became extinct. Pharisees were the leading figures in the religious life of Israel at that time. They were regarded as the conservatives or fundamentalists of their day. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe a lot of stuff. The Pharisees were much better. Well, the Sadducees, uh, the liberals focused mainly on politics. The Pharisees focused on religious life and were the ones who developed the Jewish works theology that came to be accepted by the masses. It's their doctrine that Christ is condemning, and they're the ones, along, of course, the Sadducees oppose Jesus too, but they oppose Jesus throughout his ministry. In the days Jesus walked the earth, he described the Pharisees as sitting in Moses' seat, Matthew 23, 2. This statement means they occupied the supreme place of religious authority in Israel. They were the scholars. They were the teachers of Israel. They developed theology. Our Lord condemned the Pharisees for adding to Scripture with their oral law, which he identified as human traditions. Matthew 5, 20-48, Mark 7, 1-13, etc. He referred to them as blind guides. Matthew 23, 16. Hypocrites! 
Matthew 23, 13, 14, 15, 23, 25, 27. Fools, Matthew 23, 17, 19. And serpents are brood of vipers, Matthew 23, 20, 33. And he said that their covenantal father is not God, but the devil, John 8, 44. After Pentecost, when the Jews were actively persecuting Christians and doing everything they could to hinder the preaching of the gospel, Jesus described their congregations as synagogues of Satan, Revelation 2.9. Now, I am aware that Jews will say that the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, is anti-Semitic. I'm aware of that. And that is an absolute lie. Jesus and the apostles were Jews. The early church had Jews in almost every single congregation, especially that first generation. It's not anti-Semitic, it's anti-unbelief. It's anti-apostasy. It's anti-false theology. Jesus would say the same things of a Gentile. He'd say the same things of a Roman if they were opposing the gospel. But the first generation, the gospel went to the Jews and focused on the Jews throughout in Judea and throughout the Roman Empire. And it went to the Gentiles as well. <clears throat> they strongly opposed Jesus as the Messiah. And they accused him of being a bastard, John 8.41, a blasphemer, John 8.59, and a magician who did miracles by the power of Beelzebub or Satan, Matthew 12.24. And they still teach this today. It's in the Talmud. They still teach this today. And the Talmud says, I didn't write down the, uh, the radical quotes, I have a few, but uh, the Talmud teaches that Christians and Jesus are burning in hell. A large portion of the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death consisted of Pharisees. Acts 23.6, see Matthew 26.57-59. Now, once Jesus was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, rabbis started distancing themselves from the designation Pharisees due to their ties to the Zealots, and of course, uh, some of it was due to their hypocrisy. But they retained the chief doctrines of the Pharisees. They still strongly rejected Jesus, and they clung tightly to the doctrine of salvation by works. They held to a very elaborate oral tradition, and this oral tradition goes back even before Jesus, which was uninspired, and that Jesus says they're just human traditions. They're not binding. In fact, they're worse than, they're, they're terrible because they obscure scripture and men obey their traditions instead of the Bible. Consequently, they still focused a lot on externals, such as the proper way to wash, to tithe, to fast, to pray, and maintain ritual cleanness. If you're an Orthodox Jew, I don't know if the conservative Jews require that. I know the, the liberal Jews don't. But if you buy a teapot, or a pan, or a saucer, you have to take it to the synagogue and it has to be baptized in water. Did you know it has to be immersed completely in water and, and, and sanctified by the water? And, of course, Jesus and the apostles condemned that. They used to baptize couches. Now, they couldn't immerse whole couches, so what they would do is they would sprinkle them. But uh, <laughs> that's not in the Bible. 
They rejected the Old Testament doctrine of salvation through the shed blood of a clean, spotless sacrifice that pointed to the Messiah or the suffering servant. Instead, they believed that one could earn God's favor by good works and a ceremonial compliance to the law. Modern Judaism is not a religion of the Old Testament, but is the religion of the Talmud. The Talmud is 34 volumes in English, the Socina edition. It's a compilation of the oral teachings of Jewish rabbis from around 200 BC until the 2nd century AD, the Mishnah. Added to these teachings is the Gemara, which is 300 additional years of rabbinic commentary. Therefore, they consist in about seven or eight centuries of Jewish human traditions. Begins before Jesus, Jesus condemns it thoroughly, and continues on for centuries after, after Jesus, even after the temple's destroyed. That's what we call the Babylonian Talmud. Orthodox Jews claim that this oral tradition goes all the way back to um, Moses, and consequently they believe that the Talmud is inspired and authoritative. And if you just read the Talmud sometime, just read a section of it, it's obviously fallible. It contains things that are blasphemous, and it not only contradicts Scripture, but it contradicts itself. The Talmud, however, not only explicitly contradicts many fundamental Old Testament doctrines, but also contains hundreds of internal contradictions. It also contains many perverse and even blasphemous teachings. Here's a few examples. The Babylonian Talmud, um, of the ethical teaching of the Babylonian Talmud, ought to be enough to prove to anyone that it overthrows biblical ethics. And these, this is, you can look these up if you don't believe me. I, I read these on, we had a TV show in the 90s, me and an OPC pastor, we had a, on cable access. And uh, we read these on the TV show and they, we got a bunch of complaints. And we told all the rabbi, and then we got phone calls from rabbis, because we used to give our phone number out. And every rabbi, we said, go look these up. If we are inaccurate in anything, we will publicly apologize on TV. They never called us back, because these are right in the Talmud. Here's one. A woman who commits bestiality is considered a virgin, eligible to marry a priest. It's Yabamoth 59b. The Talmud teaches that the phrase in Genesis 2.21, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, means that Adam had intercourse with all the animals of the field, but found no satisfaction until he slept with Eve. That's Yabamoth 63a. Yes, that's in the Talmud. The Talmud refers to Jesus as Balaam and says that Christians spend eternity with Jesus in boiling excrement. That's Gatim 56b to 57a. The Talmud explicitly says that pederasty and sodomy with a child under nine incurs no guilt. Sanhedrin 54b. The Talmud teaches that Molech worship is not idolatry, and that offering all thy seed, that is children of Molech, is not worthy of punishment. Beba Mezia 33a and Sanhedrin 64a and 64b. The Talmud teaches that using a poisonous snake to murder one's enemy does not incur guilt. Sanhedrin 78a. Also, a person who ties up his neighbor and allows him to starve to death is not liable. Sanhedrin 77a. And that's just a small sample. Gary North has a whole book where he's compiled quotes from the Talmud that would make you want to puke. But that's the Talmud. It's a, it's a satanic document 
to the highest degree. Even though I'm sure there are statements in it that are fine. The Pharisee stood to pray, which is the common way of praying among the Jews. And he said to himself, and this, this really means he spoke quietly, for this is a personal devotional prayer, not a public prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. That's verse 11. Well, there are a number of unbiblical features regarding this prayer. Note first what the prayer lacks, what it doesn't have, which every prayer should have and should probably begin with. There is no acknowledgement or confession of sin. None. Now, what do all Orthodox, conservative, Presbyterian churches, and well, Christian churches, evangelical churches, you would think, every one of them, the first prayer is a confession of sin. We begin every service, well, a call to worship, and then a confession of sin. The Pharisee acknowledges no guilt at all and therefore expresses no need for mercy, grace, and forgiveness. His focus is not on his unworthiness as a sinner, saved by grace alone, but on his worthiness as a sinner saved, uh, but on his worthiness and superior over others, superiority over others. He wants to tell God what a great person he is. Look at me. I'm great. I'm not like these scumbags over here. Smoking dope, snorting coke, getting hookers. Look at me, I'm wonderful. And this attitude fits perfectly with Luke's introduction for the Pharisee boldly and confidently trusted in himself that he was righteous. He did not see any sin or guilt and therefore he saw no need of a savior. And if you believe in salvation by works, that's ultimately what you really believe. You may not say that, but that's really what you believe. He did not approach Yahweh through Christ and his blood, but solely on his own merits or achievements. He is thoroughly satisfied with his own righteousness and does not seek the righteousness of another. Both Jesus, Matthew 6, 12, and the apostles, 1 John 1, 9, taught Christians the need to admit their guilt and confess their sins to God. Every day. Every day. For even those washed by Christ's blood are not sinless and must confess their sins daily. Even the greatest of saints, Calvin, Luther, the Puritans, the greatest of saints, sinned every day. Now, I'm not talking about going out and shooting somebody or committing adultery. I'm talking about sins of the mind or of the lips. The saints in the Old Testament also confess their sins. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The pattern was an admittance and confession of sin coupled with a trespass offering. Leviticus 5, 5. You confess and then you have a blood sacrifice to eliminate the guilt. The confession doesn't eliminate the guilt. It's an acknowledgement of sin, but you need a blood atonement to get rid of the guilt. 
because the core of the Old Testament religion was the need of blood atonement or an expiatory sacrifice to remove the guilt and penalty of sin. Expiatory simply means it removes guilt and sin. In Leviticus 16.16 we read, So he, that's the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So he needs to make atonement for everybody, all of Israel, because they're unclean. And because of their transgressions. They're not simply polluted in their character and their natures due to the fall, but they also have actual sins transgressions, guilt, for all their sins. In the ritual of the scapegoat, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, confess all the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of the children of Israel. This is from Leviticus 16, 21 to 22. Putting them on the head of the goat, and then he would send the goat into the wilderness, to die in the wilderness. We have here ceremonies that point directly to the bloody crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Vicarious atonement and the imputation of the sin and guilt of all believers upon Christ on the cross. You have blood atonement, expiation, and you have the doctrine of the imputation of sin. Your sins, your guilt, are reckoned to the account of Christ on the cross. Even though he's sinless and perfect, his sins are placed upon him, judicially. The assumption of the whole sacrificial system is the necessity to remove the sin and guilt of God's people so they can have fellowship with him and approach him in worship. God wants his people to worship him. He wants to have fellowship with his people, and the only way he can do that is to get rid of their guilt and sin by the blood of Christ. The pharisaical doctrine of self-righteousness or salvation by works denies one of the most fundamental teachings of Scripture. One of the most fundamental teachings from Genesis to Revelation, including the whole Old Testament, including the Torah, the five books of Moses themselves. It renders the whole meaning of the temple and sacrificial system superfluous. If you can earn redemption, if you can have works of superiorization and eliminate your guilt by doing good works, why do you even need the temple? And yet it's the focus of a whole book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. And we find a bunch of teaching about it in Numbers and Exodus and, every, and throughout the Old Testament. It leads to the anti-scriptural conclusion that Israel does not need a Messiah who is the suffering servant who atones for sin and saves his people. Which is taught throughout the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is explicit. Psalm 22 is explicit. And I could refer to many places. God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, he's going to provide a redeemer. Why do they need a redeemer if they can earn their way into heaven? With the destruction of the temple, which the Bible explicitly teaches is the only place that lawful 
animal sacrifices could be offered. The pharisaical rejection of blood atonement for sin as the only method of expiation. Let me just, I'm going to define these terms. Expiation refers to the fact that Jesus, by his vicarious suffering and death, removed the guilt and liability of punishment for his people. He suffered and died in their place, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. Our sin and guilt is washed away, Acts 22.16, covered, Romans 4.7, Psalm 32.1-2. And now our record is as white as snow, Psalm 51.7 and Isaiah 1.18. That's expiation. Sin is removed. Propitiation. Propitiation refers to the fact that once Jesus paid the penalty for sin in full for our sins, expiation and redemption, there is no longer any reason for God to be angry with us. God's anger for sin was placed on Christ at Calvary. With God's justice fully satisfied by the Savior, Yahweh's wrath no longer abides on us. So once the sin is gone, the reason for God's anger is gone. So expiation naturally leads immediately to propitiation. Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, John 3.36. And then, of course, <clears throat> reconciliation. Blood atonement brings expiation, propitiation, and reconciliation. While expiation deals with guilt and propitiation with wrath, reconciliation deals with the alienation between God and the sinner because of his iniquities and guilt. Jesus, by his vicarious suffering on the cross, has reconciled God, the offended party, to sinners who look to Christ and his work by faith. Romans 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.18-19, Ephesians 2.16. So those are terms we should all know. Expiation, sin is removed. Propitiation, now God's wrath is removed. And then reconciliation, now God is reconciled to the sinner. And we have fellowship with God. Adam, before the fall, walked and talked with God in the garden, had perfect fellowship with God. Through Christ, we have perfect fellowship with God. Their focus, the Pharisees, was on repentance. And I'm not talking about the biblical definition of repentance. Theirs is simply turning from bad behavior to ethical behavior and good works. Not on faith in the payment of the penalty by a spotless substitute, a clean animal, which pointed to Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. The Old Testament sacrifices all typified the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who, although perfect and sinless, took upon himself the sin of his people by imputation. And imputation is taught explicitly in the Old Testament, both in the law and in the writings. And Paul, when he's proving imputation in the book of Romans, I believe it's chapter 4, quotes from I think it's Psalm 32. The Jewish rabbis did not completely reject blood sacrifice because it was in the Old Testament. But their focus on good works and charity made blood atonement unnecessary. That is why most Jews are not worried about repossessing the Temple Mount and rebuilding the Temple. Only the ultra-ultra-Orthodox. And it's only the ultra-ultra-Orthodox who uh, still believe in building the Temple and still believe that the Messiah hasn't come yet. The other Jews couldn't care less if there's a Messiah, even though it's taught throughout the whole Old Testament. 
at least the ultra-Orthodox, believe the Messiah hasn't come yet and he's got to come because it's promised over and over again in the Bible. Alfred Eidersheim, who uh, was an expert in the Talmud, he was a Jewish convert to Christianity. He was actually a member of the Free Church of Scotland. Explains the Talmud or Judaism's doctrine of salvation. Quote, Although Israel, except a few notorious sinners and unbelievers, were supposed to have part in the world to come, Sanhedrin 11.1, repentance alone could not atone for the sin of apostasy, which must be expiated by the sinner's death. A heathen's penitence availed him nothing, unless he embraced the Jewish faith, and in theory it was right to refuse to save the life of an unbeliever. And then he gives the reference here from the Talmud. A proper observance of the Sabbath procured the pardon of sins. The merits of Jews secured their entrance into heaven and a share in the resurrection of the just, while the good works of the impious and the heathens um, met only their reward in this world. Targum Jeremiah and Deuteronomy, and, uh, that's, that's another quote from the Talmud. Sufferings were means of procuring merit and atoning for sin. Okay, the suffering servant before the coming of Christ was applied to the Messiah. After the coming of Christ, they applied it to themselves, to Israel. How arrogant can you be? Chastisements called the pardon of sins, but if sent as a dispensation of love, they accompanied or preceded special blessings. All means of grace were available up to death, and the soul appeared before the judge, who put the good works in one balance and evil in another, and it judged heaven or hell according to the preponderance of good or evil. That's right out of the Talmud. And I've heard that by you know, liberal Christians say this. This, this concept of the, the, your good being more than the bad and you get to go to heaven. That's a very common way of thinking in America today. And it comes from the Talmud, not the Bible. But when the good and evil works exactly counterbalance one another, it was generally supposed through the rabbis, were not quite unanimous, that God pressed down the one side of the balance or raised the other so that the merits might predominate, preponderate. Then he has the reference to the Talmud. Certain acts of kindness might in themselves prove sufficient to atone for a whole life of sin. On the whole, there was in this respect a great want of moral earnestness in the synagogue. Some saints were to possess a superfluity of merits, which might be made available to compensate for the deficiencies of others. That's identical to Roman Catholicism, by the way. Thus, amongst others, the celebrated Simon ben Chuck, uh, Jokai arrogated himself the power of atoning by his righteousness for the sins of the whole world, from his time to the end. And he gives a reference. Popularly, the merits of three fathers... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of the four mothers, this is their wives, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, were viewed as procuring favor for their descendants. Okay, salvation. That's why you see in the New Testament, it's not by good works, it's not by blood, because the Jews believe if you were a Jew, you'd get special treatment by God, just being a Jew, just being related to them. It was one of the greatest privileges of a true-born Israelite that he claim upon the treasury of merits of the patriarchs. It sounds just like Roman Catholicism. You know, instead of the Virgin Mary and the saints, it's the patriarchs. Similarly, the son of a good man might feel more assured that his prayers would be heard because of his father's merits. 
Jabam 64a. The sufferings of righteous men might suffice to atone for the sins of a whole generation in which they lived. Condemned criminals were, if unwilling to confess, to be admonished at least to exclaim, May my death be the expiation for my sins. Sanhedrin 6.2 The death of the judge, and by the way, that, that, that doctrine found its way into Mormonism somehow. The Mormonisms believed that you could atone for your sins by suffering a bloody death. And therefore, when there was a massacre in Utah of a bunch of settlers going through, they said their excuse was, well, we're, we're sending them to heaven by killing them and cutting them apart. The death of the just might be the means of procuring pardon for all Israel. Uh, Moed K 28a. The cessation of sacrifices induced the rabbis to substitute in their room the study of the law, which is exalted above every other merit. Confession, repentance, Fasting in the Day of Atonement, together with personal sufferings and merits, especially the study of the law and works of kindness. And finally, a man's last agony. Such were the means of reconciliation with God, to which the synagogue pointed a sinner, whose conscience the mere fact of his connection with the patriarchs could not sanctify. And End of quote. And I just want to point out, it's a very good summary by Edersheim, but he also points out, there's all kinds of contradictions in their system. <laughs> you know, you'll find a quote here that says, this is all you need for eternal light. Then you'll find a quote 10 pages later that says, well, no, you also need this. So it contradicts itself. But that gives you a general idea. It's very similar to Roman Catholicism, actually. And I think it was Rush Dooney or some people speculate that a lot of the heresies of Rome came from the Jews. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. Now, modern conservative Jewish apologists admit that blood sacrifice was used to atone for sin in Scripture. <coughs> but they teach that it is the least approved method of removing sin in Scripture. I, uh, I had a guy who was studying, well, his, he was a Christian and his brother became a Jew, a Orthodox Jew, an ultra-Orthodox Jew. And he had to study all this stuff. So we, we, I got to, he let me look at his study materials. So I'm, I'm giving you what they're taught. They argue that the best or preferred methods of removing the guilt of sin are repentance and charity or good works. Okay, the worst method is blood atonement. That's why you really don't need it. The best method is simply to repent and do good works. Repentance is defined by Jewish rabbis as turning to Yahweh with a pure, sincere heart and telling God, I am sorry. I'm sorry, God. Such a person, we are told, will receive complete forgiveness. They also teach that good deeds or personal righteousness can remove or outweigh guilt, and we saw that. Do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? And we see this in Roman Catholicism as well. People like Frank Sinatra, who their whole life they're out being a total whoremonger and getting drunk all the time and partying and divorcing their lives unlawfully and committing adultery and all kinds of crazy things. And then they get old they start going to church again and they pay to have all these masses said for them and they give to charity. And they think, oh, I'm going to heaven. Look, I've, I've turned over a new leaf. As we have seen, the Talmud teaches that one's good works or personal righteousness is placed on a scale and if it outweighs one's evil actions, then heaven is guaranteed. In other words...
forget that. I don't even know where that sentence went. It is important for us to analyze and refute the Jewish heresy of salvation by works. For it became the basis and influence for the works righteousness heresies of Roman Catholicism and Islam. Islam borrowed a lot from Roman Catholicism and it borrowed a lot from Judaism. They, they didn't recognize Jesus as God or the Messiah. He's just another prophet. They say good things about Jesus, but they don't believe he died on the cross for sin. In fact, they believe that he escaped and Judas was crucified in his place. And, of course, both Judaism and Islam are Unitarian, which contradicts the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they both believe in salvation by works. Before we deal with the Pharisaical proof text for salvation by works, there are some general matters to consider. First, what does the Old Testament teach explicitly about the penalty of sin? Well, it teaches that the penalty of sin is death. Physical, spiritual, eternal. And the only means of avoiding the penalty is faith in a substitutionary atonement. Genesis 2.17, Ezekiel 18.20, and see Romans 6.23. God rejected Cain's offering of the ground, that is his personal achievements in effort to please God with his fruits that he grew, but he accepted Ains, Abel's bloody sacrifice, Genesis 2, 4, 2 to 5. Blood atonement was accepted. The sacrifice typified the sacrifice of Christ. When the people of Israel were delivered from bondage in Egypt, they were saved by the blood of the Passover lamb, not by their own good works. The Passover lamb symbolized the Christ to come. Now the Jews all still celebrate the Passover. They get the matzo balls out and, and all their things they do. But they don't understand the whole symbolism of the Passover, which is Christ. The Old Testament scriptures explicitly teach that sacrificial blood is given for atonement. It says nothing about good works counterbalancing one sin and guilt. Leviticus 5, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 17, 11, etc. The Old Testament teaches there's only one way to get rid of sin. The blood of a spotless lamb, the blood of a clean animal, which points to Jesus Christ. Because we know that animals really can't remove sin, it has to be Christ. They just point to Christ. Second, the moral law of the Ten Commandments were given to Israel and inscripturated after they were redeemed. God didn't give them the Ten Commandments in Egypt and say, if you obey this, I'll save you. He redeemed them, brought them out of Egypt, and then gave them the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19. It was given as a means to maintain a proper covenant relationship, not as a method of achieving forgiveness and salvation. They already had the blood of the Lamb. They were set free because of the Passover. The Lamb without spot or blemish was sacrificed, and then its blood was splattered on the top of the door and the sides of the door, which, by the way, makes a cross. And they consumed the flesh of the roasted Lamb. All of it symbolizes Christ. Christ. 
In theological terms, we should point out that the moral law was given as a standard of sanctification, personal godliness, and covenant faithfulness, not as a means of attaining justification in God's heavenly court. The law is critical. It's important. It, teach, it shows us what sin is. It defines sin, but it also tells us how to live. And people who lead holy lives who are godly because they follow the Ten Commandments, because they follow the Old Testament moral laws, which are repeated in the New Testament and applied to different situations in church, those are the people that prosper. If you're out taking drugs and committing crimes and doing all sorts of crazy things, you don't prosper. Now, you can be in the mafia and you can prosper for a while until you're shot in the head or end up in prison the rest of your life. The path to blessing is keeping God's law. Not the path to salvation, it's the path to earthly blessings, covenant faithfulness. All heretical systems of salvation by personal merit, righteousness, or law-keeping are guilty of confounding the doctrines of justification and sanctification. The Jews do that. Roman Catholics do that. Roman Catholics say that you're saved by an infusion of grace, not by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. The Holy, you get baptized. You're, according to Roman Catholic, they believe in baptismal regeneration. You, you, you join the church, you become baptized. You obey the laws of the church. And as you become holy and more holy and holy over time, through this infusion of grace, you'll be justified once you get to, you achieve a certain level of righteousness. That's Roman Catholicism. Totally heretical. Our progress in holiness does not contribute to our salvation because God demands perfection. The holiest of saints sin every day. Islam is no better. The cults are no better. The rabbis take passages in the law that speak of the good life and the great covenant blessings that attend habitual obedience to the law, not perfection or sinlessness, which is impossible in this life. Covenantal obedience is not perfection. It's a habitual walking in God's law. And they interpret them falsely as if they taught salvation by works. Now I've run out of time, but... Um, what I want to do next is I want to go over the passages uh, that they cite as evidence of work salvation and show that they're not talking about salvation at all. And I'll give you a taste of this and then we'll stop. Proverbs 10.2 Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.4 Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. But if you go on to read the context, Proverbs 11.3 The integrity of the upright will guide them. In other words, that it's going to teach them the correct right manner of living. But the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. It's talking about earthly blessings and curses, not about achieving eternal life. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. But we'll have to look at this next week because I want to go into detail about this. There's one way to be saved. Only one way. Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He suffered. He bled out. 
he died as an expiatory, propitiatory sacrifice, eliminating the full, all the guilt and penalty of sins of all the elect. All of them. All of his people. Every sin was paid for in full. He also lived a perfect sinless life. He's the only person ever to do so. He never sinned and thought word or deed his whole life. He achieved a perfect righteousness. He was that spotless lamb that enabled him to be uh, the just while justifying the ungodly. But he also achieved a perfect positive righteousness. So if you believe in Christ, your sin and guilt is reckoned to him on the cross, imputed to him on the cross, and his perfect righteousness is then reckoned to your account, and you're accepted solely because of the righteousness of Christ. Then, out of gratitude and love for that salvation that is a free gift of God that you receive by faith alone, then we are commanded to live a covenantally faithful life and obey the law to the best of our ability, to take up the cross and follow Christ. That's radically different than Islam, the cults, and Judaism. But we'll have to continue next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. It shows us the path of life. It shows us who we are. It shows us that we need your dear son because we're filthy, rotten sinners. It shows us that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot go even one day without committing a sin in our minds. We are depraved. We're fallen. We cannot do good works that satisfy your perfect requirements. So we look to Christ, who did lead a perfect life, who did obey the law in exhaustive detail, who did obey the law in thought, word, and deed, perfectly, fulfilling the covenant of works. We do look to Christ, your Son, who died on the cross, suffering the penalty that we deserved. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we ask you to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we could be covenantally faithful and obey your holy moral law and lead lives worthy of our calling. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.